The Lord taught Peter that God is no respecter of persons. And when he said that to Peter, what he meant was that God doesn't show partiality toward people based upon anything in a person. Based upon his sex, based upon nationality, based upon skin color. God is not a respecter of people. Before God, everyone is on equal footing. We all stand before him as creatures made in his image and as those who have sinned against him. As such, there are at least three things that must always be recognized about every person. Every person you know, you can say these three things are true of them, and this includes yourself. One, every person is indeed an image bearer of God. God created us after his own image. We are his representatives on the earth. And so, as image bearers of God, He intends that we would reflect Him to the world. That we would declare what is true about Him. This is what separates people from animals. Animals are not made in God's image, though they are creatures like we are. Animals do not have souls, though we have souls. People, because we're created in the image of God have the capacity to know God. We can have intimate fellowship with God in ways that mere animals cannot. So every person is created in God's image. Secondly, every person is sinful and as a result is separated from God by that sin. Sin entered the world through our first parents. And that sin spread from them to the whole human race. That means... That though we are each one created in the image of God, sin has turned us against Him. Sin turned God's angels into devils and God's image bearers into rebels. This is a spiritual condition in which every person finds himself or herself at birth. We are born in sin and we grow up in sin. As a result, Everyone, by nature, is separated from God. Which means, thirdly, everyone comes into this world needing to be reconciled to God. And the only way that anybody will be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the worst of sinners, so that all who acknowledge Him as Lord, turn from their sin and trust Him, will be saved, will be made right with their Creator. That's the message that the Apostle Paul elaborates in his letter to the church at Rome. He writes about the gospel, the good news in this letter. He does so more systematically in Romans than he does in any of his other writings. He wants to make sure we understand the nature of this salvation that God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ so that we won't miss it, so that we won't misconstrue it, so that we won't think ourselves right with God while in reality missing God altogether. Salvation we have from God comes through the person and work of His Son. It comes to us by grace. It is received only through faith. 
In our previous studies of Romans, we looked at verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter where the Apostle Paul announces the theme of the whole letter. He writes there, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul then goes on and uses the rest of chapter 1 to show how the Gentiles, those who are not religious, are under sin. They have a need of a Savior because they come into this world sinful. And having made the case for Gentiles, irreligious people, being sinners by nature, he then shifts over to talk about Jews in chapter 2, the religious people. And he says, just as the Gentiles are sinners, Jews are sinners. Just as Gentiles cannot perform righteousness that is acceptable to God, neither can religious people, neither can Jews. Sin, Paul argues, is a universal reality. No one escapes it, no matter how religious you might be or how irreligious you are. Well, if this is true, if Jews are just as sinful naturally as Gentiles are, then what difference does it make if a person is a Jew? What difference does it make if a person is religious? Are there any benefits to being religious? Well, that's the question that first century Jews would have asked Paul as he argued for the universality of sin and elaborated the nature of God's gospel by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that question leads to many other questions. Questions like this. Is the Jewish religion simply of no value? Did God's work among His Old Testament people then just fail? If being a Jew makes a person no more righteous before God than being a Gentile, then what advantage is there at all to being a Jew? Paul takes up these objections, these questions, in chapter 3 of the letter of Romans. In the first eight verses of this chapter, which is our text for today, found on page 940 in the Bibles that are provided for you, we see the Apostle Paul dealing with a battery of questions that arise from what he's just written. In fact, in our text, we will see nine specific questions. They all come about because of what he has said about the universality of sin and the gospel of God's grace. The point that he makes in these eight verses is an important one for us to keep in mind today. Our sin does not overthrow God's purposes. That's a point that is especially important for our children to know. Particularly for children and young people who are growing up in the church. If you've grown up in the church or you're growing up in the church, that's a great blessing from God. But it comes with serious temptations. Because the closer you are and the more involved you are in the life of a church, the more you have opportunity to see the sin of God's people and the leaders of that church. And if you're not thinking rightly, you can allow the sin that exists in God's people to disillusion you in thinking that it just doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter. If sin exists in religious people, then why should I just not go out and live like the world? Those types of thoughts can lead some people to question whether there's any truth or reality at all to the message of salvation. Paul 
wants to address that issue. And he wants to show us that our sin can never thwart God's purposes. And we must listen to what God has said about himself and about us and about the way of salvation. So our text is Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Let me encourage you to get that in front of you because I just want to walk through these verses with you this morning. Paul here is answering objections to his teaching on the universality of sin and salvation by grace. So follow along, if you're using the Bible provided, page 940, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. Our sin does not overthrow God's purposes. There are nine questions in these eight verses. The questions arise from what Paul has written about sin being universal and God's salvation being by grace alone through Jesus Christ alone. Paul asks these questions in a rhetorical way, anticipating, perhaps reflecting upon some of the false inferences that have been drawn by his critics to his teachings up to this point. What he is arguing is that everyone needs to be saved by God's grace because everyone has sinned against God. And so the case he's building is that salvation comes from God and it is by grace plus nothing. It is received through faith plus nothing. And it is found only in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Some of the opponents of the Apostle Paul hearing this message think, well, if that's true then, you can just do whatever you want to do. You can live however you want to live. You can give yourself over to evil. They actually charged Paul with antinomianism as we see in the last verse of the passage I read. They accused him of teaching a gospel that led to lawless living. Well, Paul addresses addresses these accusations and these false inferences in the verses that I've just read. And he does so by taking up a series of questions. And we can take these nine questions that Paul uses rhetorically and we can group them together under three broad headings that I'm going to put in the form of a question as well that encompasses each of them. The first question we want to look at is in verses 1 and 2. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? The second question we'll ask is in verses 3 and 4. If some do not believe, does that mean that God has failed? And then the third summary question we'll take up verses 5 through 8. Is God really righteous in punishing sin? If the Jews are as sinful as the Gentiles, and they're all under God's judgment for sin, 
then this first question logically arises. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Well, that's the point of the two questions that we find actually in verse 1. What advantage is there to being a Jew? What about circumcision? This mark that distinguished Jewish people from other people. Is there an advantage? Is there value? Well, Paul answers this question in an unexpected and emphatic way. I mean, after what he's just written about Jews being under sin as much as Gentiles, we might expect him to answer the question by saying, well, no, there's not any real advantage to being a Jew because you're under sin just like Gentiles are. But that's not what he says. He wants us to see how God's saving purposes that came through the Jewish people are not thwarted at all by our sin. The Jews were indeed advantaged people. And he highlights this by citing one of the most significant advantages that belonged to them. The Jews were given the very words of God. So he says, to begin with, first of all, foremost, and we almost expect him to to continue with secondly and thirdly, but he doesn't. He just highlights this one supreme Very important advantage. Now later on in chapter 9, he is going to come back to this and list other advantages that belong to the Jewish people as well. If you look at Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, whose God over all blessed forever Amen. So he does list out a multitude of advantages that come to Jews. But here in our text, he zeroes in on the foremost advantage that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The very words of God is what he has in mind there. God's speech that had been recorded for them and given to them. He says, entrusted to them, which means that they not only were the recipients of it, they were the stewards of God's revelation. They were blessed to have it and obligated to share it. In ancient Greek and Roman history, the pagan gods of those people were often seen to be full of wisdom that they would speak at different times to people. And the speech of the pagan gods were called oracles. And you've heard of the Oracle of Delphi. That's where it got its name because it was a certain place where supposedly the spirit of the Greek god Apollo would speak through different priestesses, giving answers to difficult questions or telling the fortunes of those who came looking for insight into the future. Where Paul here says that the Jews have the very oracles The very words of God. They were God's chosen people in the old covenant. He set them apart from other nations by giving them his law. He sent them his prophets. He revealed to them his covenants. He taught them the gospel. The good news of salvation and a savior who would one day come as the Messiah. The Jews enjoyed all of these privileges because God had spoken to them. They possess the very words of God. Brothers and sisters, we likewise are incredibly 
privileged. We and those who are a part of our families are privileged because we have access to God's very words. When we gather regularly for worship like this, God's words are read in our hearing. We sing God's words. You who are not members of a church and yet you come and worship with God's people regularly, do you stop and consider how kind God is to you? What an advantage He's given to you? Week by week, you get to hear God's Word as it is accurately taught and proclaimed. It is the very Word of God to you. What an advantage. What a privilege. What a blessing to know that God Himself speaks to us in His written Word. Children, young people, you, you who are growing up in this church, what a blessing that God has put you among a people that recognizes the Bible as His Word and wants to read that Bible to you and teach that Bible to you so that you might be given opportunity to hear God, to hear from His very Word. We have the oracles of God provided to us, just like the Jews did in the Old Covenant. It's no small thing. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's a stewardship. And may the Lord help us as a congregation to recognize how He has dealt with us in such grace. To know the gospel, to hear the gospel, is an incredible blessing. But knowing and hearing and having access to the gospel alone will not make you right with God. And so children can grow up in a church where God's word is taught. In a home where the gospel is set before them. And if they do not believe that word and turn from their sin and trust the Lord Jesus. Then they will experience everlasting damnation even though they spent their life within the sound of God's very words. What a blessing. What an opportunity. What an obligation. If you have never turned from your sin, then you must turn from your sin today. If you've never bowed to Jesus, whom God sent into the world to save sinners, then you must bow to Him today. You must be reconciled to your God today because God has given you opportunity. He's calling you by His Word and His Spirit to be reconciled to your Creator. That's why He brought you here today. And you should take God at His Word. Don't let this blessing turn into a curse by going into eternity separated from God by the sin that you have, the sin that is in you. Never having that sin dealt with by faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine an eternity like that? Can you imagine? Sin away from God in eternity. Under his wrath justly because of your sin against him. Remembering forever. That you had the oracles of God. Friend, young person, children, believe God. 
Take God at His word. Don't squander the advantages that you have to hear His word. Well, after addressing the question of what advantage there is to being a Jew, Paul next deals with the question of unbelief among the Jews. If some do not believe, does that mean that God has failed? That's the point of the two questions in verses 3 and 4. Some of the Jews were unfaithful to God despite the advantages He gave them. In fact, in Paul's day, most of the Jews did not trust God savingly. Most of the Jews thought, as Paul did before he was converted, that the way of Jesus Christ was a sham. It was a lie. That the followers of Christ were heretics. This is a dilemma. You see, if God's own people, His old covenant chosen people to whom He had given His very oracles do not comply with His words, they do not trust the provision of His salvation, then what does that say about God? If God's own people reject His words, what kind of God is He? Can't get His own people to trust Him? Is He really trustworthy? That's the point of the second question in verse 3. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does the fact that unbelieving Jews do not believe mean that God really isn't faithful? That He's not able to do everything that He said He was going to do? Most Jews in Paul's day rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They didn't believe God sent him into the world to save sinners from sin. They did not believe the word that they had been given. But God's purposes had not failed for that reason. When the question's asked, Paul answers in the strongest language that he ever uses in the New Testament. No way. God forbid. Perish the thought. That's the point of this language. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, let God be God regardless of what anybody says or what people do. Paul asserts what God has revealed about himself. And what has God taught us about himself in his oracles? That he is faithful. He's faithful. His words never fail. His promises always will be fulfilled. Numbers 23, verse 19, when Balak tried to get Balaam, the false prophet, to speak curses on Israel, God wouldn't let it happen. And so Balaam was led to say this, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Through Moses, before the people crossed over into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, We read that God is the rock. His work is perfect for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Ezekiel 12, 25, God says, I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. But in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. Paul quotes from David's prayer of confession of sin in Psalm 51 verse 4 to buttress his argument here. Do you see this in verse 4? 
He says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You go back and read Psalm 51 and you'll see immediately before these words, David says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. What David is doing there is acknowledging that his sin of murder, his sin of adultery, was ultimately primarily a sin against God. All sin is theological. All sin is vertical. You might think, oh well, it's just a little white lie and I don't like that person anyway. It's sin against God. You might think, well, this company can afford if I steal from them because they've got so much reserve they will never miss it. You are sinning against God. And when David says that, he acknowledges that his sin is ultimately primarily against God. He's acknowledging that all sin is a declaration of war against God. So when God fulfills judgment against sinners, He is vindicated in doing so. Because He is exercising judgment against those who rebelled against Him. God is in no danger of being found unfaithful when the creatures that He made in His image fail to live according to His will. He always will do all of His holy will. You see what Paul's doing here when he reasons this way? He's teaching us how we ought to think and reason. He doesn't look at the appearances and then reason from appearances to conclusions about God. Rather, he looks at reality that God has revealed about himself and lets the truth of that revealed reality interpret appearances. Help him understand what true reality is. As he does this, he starts with a revelation that God is faithful. No matter what anyone says or does, God is faithful. No matter what happens or doesn't happen, God is faithful. No matter what you understand or don't understand, God remains true. He's faithful no matter what His people experience. All of His promises, all of His purposes will be fulfilled. That was a very hard lesson for Job to learn. Job was a man of God, righteous, worshiping God as God had revealed. And through that scene that we are given a glimpse into where the devil comes and makes accusations, God allows Satan to come and test Job. And he takes his family from him, he takes his wealth from him, he takes his health from him, he creates turmoil in his marriage. And Job is thinking, why are all these things against me? And he questions God. He says, oh, if I could only find God. If I could just get God to give attention to me, we would have it out here. Until God showed up. And the reality, the truth about God, overwhelmed Job. So that Job realized, I've spoken about you with my mouth, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears have really heard who you are. I just put my hand over my mouth, cover myself with sackcloth and ashes. Job says, I, I didn't understand reality. So you come to the end of his book, and this is his testimony. I know, he says to God, you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It looked like his purposes were being thwarted. 
But whenever God revealed himself, when the oracles of God began to shape Job's thinking, then he interpreted his experiences in the light of reality. This lesson that Job learned, I say this reverently, is a lesson that the Lord Jesus himself also learned in his sufferings as he obeyed his father hanging upon the cross. It seemed in those hours as if God himself had abandoned Jesus. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet when he breathed his last, what did he do? He commended his spirit into the hands of his faithful God and Father. Later, when Peter reflects upon that scene, he writes this in 1 Peter 2, that Jesus was reviled, but he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. (laughs) Injustice all around. I trust myself to the just judge whose purposes never fail. And so Peter goes on then to make the application to us In chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Looks like God's not present. Looks like God's promises aren't being fulfilled. Looks like His Word doesn't mean anything. What do you do? You come back to reality. The reality that has been revealed about God. He's faithful. And you entrust yourself to Him. You believe. That he is not going to let any one of his words fall to the ground unfulfilled. I wonder if there are some here this morning and, and you're, you're not a Christian. And you, and you know Christians, you know church people that are really just hypocrites. And it's just kind of left a sour taste in your mouth. Because people who name the name of Jesus never intending to be what they pretend to be. And so you just kind of let that thought linger in your head and think, well, there's really nothing to this. If there's anything to this Christianity, anything to this Bible talk, then surely these people would be living differently. Paul says, and we should say, if every professing Christian in the world turns out to be a liar, God would still be true. And we must deal with God directly on the basis of what He Himself reveals and not fall into the trap of looking at things and the appearances and making wrong deductions about God from them. God's faithful. He keeps His word. He will fulfill all of His purposes. He will forgive and save all who turn from sin and trust His Son. That's why Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost, to live and die and be raised from the dead in order to reconcile all who trust in Him to God. So trust in the Lord Jesus and you will come to know God savingly. Refuse the Lord Jesus for all of your life and you will be consigned to eternity under the just wrath of your Creator. God is true. He's faithful. He will never violate His Word. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Yes, that's what Paul says. Well, if some do not believe, does that mean that God has failed? No, never. Well, the third 
summary question that Paul takes up is found in verses 5 through 8. Is God really righteous then in punishing sin? There are five questions in these four verses and they all revolve around the righteousness of God. Paul is going after a false inference of a point that he's just made in verses 3 and 4. That is that God is vindicated in judging sinners. Well, some of his critics are saying, well, if that's true then, then why, does God, why would God still punish us for sin since our sin actually helps vindicate the righteousness of God? If God's righteousness is highlighted by the way that he punishes sin, then why would he be upset with our sin? Because he's getting glory and demonstrating his righteousness in punishing our sin. Punish us, he should thank us. Our sin helps magnify his righteousness. If my lie, Paul says, becomes the backdrop against which God's truth shines, why should he condemn me? Furthermore, his critics went on to argue, shouldn't we just give ourselves over to evil so that good may come? The good of God's vindicating of himself by judging evil? Again, when that question is considered, Paul answers it in the strongest possible language. Absolutely not. No way. God forbid. Perish the thought. The accusations that some people have made against Paul in his teaching at this point, he says in verse 8, are slanderous. They slanderously accuse me of teaching this. They are condemnable. They are worthy of condemnation because those who make this kind of false inference are completely perverting my teaching. Paul will not own the inferences of those people who are making these accusations because those inferences are false. The gospel that he preaches reveals the way of salvation apart from works. But the gospel that the Apostle Paul preaches is not a lawless gospel. It is a gospel that makes people holy. It is a gospel that if you believe it and you are rightly related to Jesus Christ, it will change your life. It will alter the way you live so that now you become more and more committed to growing in Christ-likeness. And if that's not happening and you think you're believing the gospel, then you need to back up and ask yourself, what gospel is it that I'm believing? What does my faith actually consist of? He will elaborate this point in chapter 6 and 7 showing the gospel of grace is a gospel of holiness. If God is unrighteous to punish our sin, verse 6, then how could God judge the world, Paul reasons. You see the method again, it's the same method. He looks at the appearances and his critics go from the appearances to make deductions about God. And Paul says, no, let's look at the appearances and let's go to what God says about himself and let's take that as our presupposition in order to explain and understand the appearances. What do we know about God? He is the judge of the world. God is the one who's revealed that he will one day call everyone to an account. There is a day of judgment coming. The Scripture clearly reveals this. Jesus Himself teaches that on that day, God will cast all unrepentant sinners into what He calls eternal punishment. The Apostle Paul, when he was 
preaching before the Athenians in Acts 17.31 puts it like this, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So yes, God is righteous in judging sinners and punishing sin. That's what makes sin so serious. It's against God. It separates us from God. It provokes His wrath against us. God will not overlook any sin. Friend, God will not mitigate your sin based upon your circumstances. Sin is a violation of His right, good, holy law. It is an offense to the God who created you. And there's a day of judgment coming. And on that day, He will not leave any sin unpunished. If you doubt this truth about God, I encourage you to just think about the cross of Jesus Christ. What was going on on the cross? What's happening there? This is the eternal Son of God, the Son of His love. This is the the Son of His delight. The One in whom He's well pleased. Who, when He became a man, to represent sinners, taking the place of sinners, to, to the point of enduring the punishment of sin against sinners, when Jesus stepped into the place of sinners on the cross, God didn't spare Him. The son of his love. He unsheathed his sword and he plunged it fully into the son of his love. He poured out his wrath against sin on the son of his love. You think Jesus deserved that treatment from God? Not in and of himself, but when he took the place of sinners, he absorbed the just wrath of God against sin. If God didn't spare His own Son, do you think He's going to spare you and your sin? He's just. He will fulfill His purposes. His judgment against sin is completely vindicated. The Lord has taught us that the soul that sins must surely die. Sin is serious. That's why Paul has spent two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, trying to elaborate the universality of sin because he wants everybody to get it. You need to get it. I need to get this. We need to recognize that sin is serious. It provokes God's wrath. It will incur His wrath. And that every one of us and all the people that we know are sinful. And somebody's got to die for our sin. Somebody's going to have to pay. And if Christ has not paid for your sin, if you're not turning from your sin and trusting Him as your Lord and Savior so that you can say, my sins have been paid for in His death, friend, you are in danger of having to go into eternity paying for your own sin. Why would you do that? Why would you keep living in rebellion to your Maker, knowing that you have sinned 
and not take Him at His word and provide and take the provision that He's made in Jesus Christ to reconcile you to God? Why would you not right now, where you are as you are, bow to God and say, oh God, save me. Grant me your grace. Grant me your forgiveness. Grant me pardon. Grant me reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Trust the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be reconciled. Your sin will be carried away from you and you'll never have to bear it again. You won't ever have to worry about paying for your sin because you can keep looking to Jesus Christ and say, there, it's been paid for. He's done it. It's finished. Trust the Lord Jesus. God's brought you to hear His Word, the very oracles of God, so that you would not have to die in your sin and live forever under His wrath. There's no magic to this. There's no trick. You don't have to jump through a hoop. You have to believe God. Acknowledge what's true. Take Him at His Word. Confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And you'll be saved. If you refuse to trust Christ. Be assured of this. Your unbelief will not overthrow the purposes of God. God will have a people for Himself. His purposes will not fail. He calls every one of us today to become a part of His people He sets this glorious invitation before you and He pleads with you to be reconciled to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our Lord cannot fail. His purposes will stand forever. No one can overthrow them. So we should take heart and be encouraged. On our worst days, when things seem like they're falling apart all around us, we can be assured of this, that the throne of heaven is not tottering one bit. God is working all things together after the counsel of His own will. Take advantage of the opportunity to live with God's people. Become one of God's people. Having God's Word. Taking that Word seriously. Don't be discouraged if some people don't believe the Word. Don't give up. God's Word will not fail. He is faithful. Don't doubt the reality of God's coming punishment of all sin. He is righteous, and He will demonstrate His righteousness in judgment. So what does that mean for us? It means that we should live by faith. We should be a people who who have a default mode to listen to what God says in His oracles and to believe that and to let that truth then shape the way we think about this world so that we live by faith. We walk by faith. And we take advantage of everything that God's revealed to us in His Word to be a people who declare His greatness and His glory in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray You would help us to be people who take Your Word seriously, who believe it, who submit our lives to it. Help us to be a people who see ourselves as stewards of your word and who seek to make it known to others. I pray for unbelievers that are here today. Those who walked through the doors separated from you because of sin. Please, Father, come and reveal Jesus in them.
create faith in them so that they may walk out the doors today being reconciled to you by your grace, having turned from sin to trust Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.